Two's and strike. And here is pitch number two. With one blast of his bat. They were riding on an open automobile when the shots were fired. Nervous, you can yell fire in a crowded theater if you're on stage, but don't do it off stage. The theater is make-believe, that's where it's at. I seem somehow to recognize it. I don't mean I know who was speaking. It was the tone I recognized, the touching quality of some half-remembered and tender event, even through the static. Welcome to Don DeLillo Should Win the Nobel Prize. I'm Jeff Sievers. And I'm Mike Strait. Happy birthday, Don DeLillo. We're releasing this on November 20th, which is Don DeLillo's 87th birthday. He is born on November 20th, 1936. And we think of this episode as, well, a couple things. One, a tribute to the life of DeLillo, part of the life of DeLillo, as we'll say, but also a good episode for those of our listeners who might be looking to get into DeLillo and have an interest in his life and background that uh, certainly will come across uh, in this episode. We're going to only cover part of that life uh, because we have more birthday episodes to come. For sure, we're going to be talking about roughly the first 30 years of his life from uh, his birth in 1936 to the mid-60s, roughly uh, 1966 uh, in this account of uh, the life or the lives of DeLillo. And we have a special episode coming up that Mike's going to tell us about. Yeah, Mike? Yeah, we're excited to hear what your favorite DeLillo passages are. And we're going to have a special episode at the end of the year where we share those in your voice. You can record your favorite excerpt. It can be short, it can be long, up to about two minutes. And you can do this at the following link, speakpipe.com forward slash Delillo podcast. Once again, that's speakpipe.com forward slash Delillo podcast. We will put that URL in the show notes, and we look forward to hearing from you then over the course of the next month or so. Start with the biography. Well, where do you start with a biography that hasn't uh, officially been written yet? <laughs> right. Uh, you start at the beginning. At the beginning, November 20th, 1936, DeLillo is born in New York City in the Bronx. And um, we thought we would start with a few interview quotes that cover. We'll be reading from various interview quotes throughout the um throughout this episode, but uh, to start with some where he discusses his family background and so on. Um, So the first of these is from Adam Begley's comprehensive 1993 Paris Review interview, the Art of Fiction interview series that they do, where Begley asks this, does the fact that you grew up in an Italian-American household translate in some way? Does it show up in the novels you've published? And DeLillo answers, it showed up in early short stories, I think, 
I think it translates to the novels only in the sense that it gave me a perspective from which to see the larger environment. It's no accident that my first novel was called Americana. This was a private declaration of independence, a statement of my intention to use the whole picture, the whole culture. America was and is the immigrant's dream, and as the son of two immigrants, I was attracted by the sense of possibility that had drawn my grandparents and parents. This was a subject that would allow me to develop a range I hadn't shown in those early stories, a range and a freedom. And I was well into my 20s by this point, and had long since left the streets where I'd grown up. Not left them forever. I do want to write about those years. It's just a question of finding the right frame. Hmm. And then I'll share a, another interview quote or two to, um, from the same world and time. Uh, the second one uh, that we wanted to discuss is from an interview DeLillo gave to Gordon Byrne, a British journalist in 1991. And he says there, this is a, a kind of more than Delillo has said at other times about the particulars of his family's immigration story. My parents were born in Italy. My father came to this country in 1916, I believe, when he was a young boy of nine. There was my grandmother, my father, and his brothers and sisters. There was a total of about seven people, including a dwarf and a child my grandmother picked up in Naples along the way. My father eventually went to work for the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company as a sort of auditor in an enormous office at one desk, along with a hundred identical desks here in New York. Uh, sorry, Jeff, uh, I don't think I heard you quite correctly. Did you say dwarf? <laughs> I did say dwarf. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That, that, just that, checking. That, that's the uh, just checking that. part of the uh, family background of total of about seven people, including a dwarf and a child my grandmother picked up in Naples along the way. You bring this up, Mike, uh, why? Why do you point to the dwarf? Well, even in the relation of what should be, probably should be, relatively simple details, we have literary qualities already. Not only do we have a potential, I don't know, fabulous tendency, perhaps, uh, with the inclusion of the dwarf. I'm not saying that Delillo is, yeah. is intentionally... Uh, spicing things up or not, but even in the talk about his father's work and place of work, we have an enormous office, one desk along with a hundred identical desks. I mean, it conjures a scene. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. there's 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 this bleed through of fact and fiction already. Yeah, with here. I mean, what's interesting is that that is this more forthcoming interview, the one from 1991, and I sort of think of it as reinforcing some of the things from the 1993 interview about the kind of myth of America in a sense that he says, you know, uh, America was and is the immigrant's dream. And that's why he titled his first novel Americana. And, and you know, we've talked about in, in discussing Americana that there's already artificialness, right. Uh, and already a kind of mythos built into the, the title um, as opposed to titling the book America mm -hmm. or, or something like that mm -hmm. without having any uh, kind of basis on which to sort of like, you know, confirm the facts or fact check uh, these kind of background family background stories, which are of course always subject to a kind of mythologization within the family. Um, there does seem to be this kind of playfulness uh, built into them, potentially, in a way. And a playfulness that it seems he can't help. He can't, it's almost like he can't help uh, spinning off into vivid images, uh, interesting scenarios. 
we take the, the, these, this as the DeLillo family origin story, uh, certainly, but uh, we should note that, um, there's a DeLillo scholar, Henry Vegian, who's written for the University of South Carolina Press, uh, understanding Don DeLillo, um, in their series on contemporary authors. And he starts from a valiant attempt to confirm, uh, the sort of DeLillo immigration story. And the particulars of them coming from Abruzzi, if I'm uh, uh, pronouncing this correctly, and sort of um, the, the particulars of the year, verifying it with census records. And Vengian says he can't uh, confirm, you know, the particulars of DeLillo's family, which lends itself without us being able to in, in, enter into this as a kind of historian's debate at all. Um, but does lend this uh, a sense that we're getting a kind of, um, well, as you're suggesting, a writer at work uh, on the interview stories that, that are asked for potentially and um, uh, a kind of fabulation that fits with a writer who would take on the American dream, take on the American myth uh, in such fundamental ways Um um, that's well although not kind of in a sustained way. I mean, that's an interesting thing for to think about over the course of the career, although maybe it's there throughout. I also almost hate to say it, but to uh, smudge a detail or two or to, uh, to invent, it also uh, plays into his preoccupation with privacy that he yeah. frequently refers to throughout the interviews. I think he's both... It's a fascinating approach he has to, to interviews and book signings and book tours because he presents himself both as an open book and a closed book at the same time. Yeah, we are fond of quoting the interview, quote, the quote from one of his first really substantial interview, I think, or one of the first from 1979 with Tom LeClaire where he says, people always say you're such a recluse. And he says, and yet here I am <laughs> that, that, that to paraphrase. And yet it is true that, you know, if we, we haven't read every word of the interviews, but we know that especially in the period kind of of the late eighties, when he's become more famous and more interviewed, therefore uh, for white noise, Libra, especially he, you know, he hadn't done promotional tours for until, books until Libra. Libra. Yeah. And he, these interview 91 and 93 date from a period when he had been saying in, in some interviews from that late eighties period, you know, I would rather just write the books essentially, uh, and not, um, tour and promote them or not do these kinds of things. And, you know, it's, it's not something to be, it, it, it speaks to that, that claim to privacy that, is one of his great themes. And as you mm -hmm. say, you know, a kind of personal statement too. One of the other great quotes that comes from another interview uh, is that he became a writer by avoiding serious commitment to everything else. <laughs> and he's avoided perhaps a commitment to hard, concrete biographical <laughs> revelation. Like ah. uh, he he's, he's never let himself, get in the way of, of his authorship. He's mm -hmm. never let whatever, um, ego image. He's very careful about, uh, about his image in, in terms of how it would reflect on his books or just how it would, uh, impact his career as a writer or yeah. just writing in general. I feel like he's always been mindful of, of the type of ego that can 
that can come of fame and literary fame. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're making me think too of of later works, much later works like um, Michael Majeski and Valparaiso, which seems to be all about the kind of form of the interview, uh, the form of the media mm-hmm. mediated uh, interview that Delillo had clearly been kind of um, dissecting as he went along as a watcher of the culture, but also as a listener in his own interviews. You know, I mean, right in, in this period we're discussing, he starts Mao too from the author photograph shoot, which is, you know, clearly a kind of, a, he's addressing an element of this kind of literary, and I'm putting this next word in quote marks here, celebrity mm-hmm. that he had come into mm-hmm. in a way, um, you know, especially with, white noise in 85 and we will have more to say about um not committing to a job uh, <laughs> later in this podcast as well as uh some of the other things you bring up but we should move to our kind of second batch of quotes here about reading about what he read in this childhood once he had gotten born into this uh into this italian american family do you want to read yeah. the uh, interviewer? Uh, th- this is again from Adam Begley's 93 Paris Review interview. So the interview asks, did you read as a child? DeLillo answers, no, not at all. Comic books. This is probably why I don't have a storytelling drive, a drive to follow a certain kind of narrative rhythm. The interviewer, as a teenager, DeLillo, not much at first. Dracula, when I was 14. A spider eats a fly, and a rat eats the spider, and a cat eats the rat, and a dog eats the cat, and maybe somebody eats the dog. Did I miss one level of devouring? And yes, the Studs Lonigan trilogy, which showed me that my own life, or something like it, could be the subject of a writer's scrutiny. This was an amazing thing to discover. Then, when I was 18, I got a summer job as a playground attendant, a parkie, and I was told to wear a white t-shirt and brown pants and brown shoes and a whistle around my neck, which they provided the whistle. But I never acquired the rest of the outfit. I wore blue jeans and checkered shirts, and kept the whistle in my pocket, and just sat on a park bench disguised as an ordinary citizen. And this is where I read Faulkner, as I lay dying and light in August. And I got paid for it. And then James Joyce, and it was through Joyce that I learned to see something in language that carried a radiance. Something that made me feel the beauty and fervor of words the sense that a word has a life and a history. And I'd look at a sentence in Ulysses or in Moby Dick or in Hemingway. Maybe I hadn't gotten to Ulysses at that point. It was portrait of the artist. But certainly Hemingway and the water that was clear and swiftly moving and the way the troops went marching down the road and raised dust that powdered the leaves of the trees. All this in a playground in the Bronx. Self-mythologizing going on here, too, and yet also... I mean, I just love that the, the kind of fundamental of this story is that it's a kind of outlaw story, reading as the thing you get paid to do. On the company dime. On the company dime, <laughs> when you're supposed to be a kind of policeman figure, right? I guess like a parkie would but, have been keeping kids in line, and yet Delillo doesn't wear the uniform. Disguised as an ordinary citizen. Disguised as an ordinary citizen <laughs> is where he reads all these kind of great works of literature where... Yeah, there's a kind of warp speed in a sense of just in the space of this paragraph you read between, oh, I didn't read much <laughs> Dracula when I was 14, and then this kind of 
nursery rhyme account. And then, um, and then suddenly we're in the great modernist classics, you know, it's um, a, it's a quantum leap. Yeah. And, uh, he doesn't really explain here how or why that happens other than having the time to right. do, to do yeah. it, like the opportunity to, to kind of kill the two birds with one stone and to just, uh, in, it seems like he just enjoys yeah. enjoys the process. Well, and he said, you know, it's the, there's the outlaw aspect of this. There's also the autodidact aspect right. of this because he's a high schooler here. And he says he went to a, a Catholic high school in the Bronx, Cardinal Hayes High School. And he says in another interview, maybe more than one, I slept through four years <laughs> there. Um, and, and we'll get to what he has to say about his college, Fordham University. But they're similar kind of like anti student kinds of kind of a slacker a slacker yeah but clearly in this autodidactic mode where you know he wouldn't be the first uh young reader to read things that aren't on the school list well perhaps he would he would have agreed and do it in the summertime while working a summer job wasn't it twain who said that he wouldn't let school get in the way of his education right maybe delillo uh would have subscribed yeah yeah in a way he there's there's so much here but a kind of mixture of influences too because he expands on Hemingway as a resource for him by talking about the water that was clear and swiftly moving and the way the troops went marching down the road and raised dust that powdered the leaves of the trees which is a kind of recitation from memory that of course doesn't work it with uh Joyce, you know, in a sense, like to sum up the influence, you know, of, of, especially the Joyce of Ulysses, mm-hmm. or Delillo, you know, can't be done in any sort of compact, uh, way or with a citation in a sense, not that Hemingway is a kind of simple source. Either. No, but I know what you mean. I think that the, the Joyce comes as, as no surprise, especially being familiar with Americana as we are, that influence is quite on the sleeve. Kinch the knife blade as yeah. he takes up Stephen Dedalus's nickname. As it is through through a lot of the work and a lot of different elements, the the Faulkner is interesting, don't you think? Yes, yeah. I mean, he doesn't. Uh, he mentions as they lay dying in light in August. I'm thinking of Sullivan telling a kind of Faulknerian incest story in that case as this long, uh, you know, uh, story of her background. Mm-hmm. Um, towards the end of Americana that seems like a kind of key to the novel and yet is so kind of outside, you know, it, it's, it, it's such a set piece in a way, but that certainly seems, I think there's a kind of, um, there are references therein that, that are suggestive of, of Faulkner. And she at least says these are, this is her like Scots Irish background, mm-hmm. uh, and so on a kind of anyway yeah. there's also just black culture in mm. in Faulkner all over the place which is a, a long-standing interest of Delillo's late in August there's the the kind of outsider outcast uh, character of Jill Christmas right as well yeah. Delillo has always been fascinated with the the fringe the outsider the per- the, the exile yeah right? who knows maybe he's kind of finding a prototype in this Faulkner outcast or yeah exile. well and in ways that we are i think we have more to we will have more to say about in various other 
uh, episodes that he's um, one book that doesn't he doesn't mention in any of these interviews that I think is quite important to him based on references is Ellison and Invisible Man um, in the on the first page of, of Endzone as we've discussed but also this play he writes in the mid sixties Mother um, but um, yeah more to say about Mother when we uh, take it on more to say about Dracula as well as well, well. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe we'll get there sometime the, soon the inside joke here is that I uh, you know see lots of vampirism uh, in the uh, in some of the moments like uh, Bucky shaving and thinking about his own throat being slit and so on. Well, but, uh, yeah, the Dracula, the Dracula name drop is an interesting one here. I don't think that anyone would see that coming. Also, the the spider uh, eating the fly and the rat eating. There, there, there's a kind of reference to that in Ratner Star, I think. Interestingly, I think in the opening pages, there's there's a line that very much reminds me of of, of this little interview. Bit. What the, the chain of. Yeah. The, the food chain. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, that's just, isn't that like an, an is that a kind of independent nursery rhyme or is that? Yeah. Particular... Is, isn't that like, um, the, the little old lady swallowed a fly. I think she'll die. Oh, the, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Where we'll have to, we'll have to yeah. look yeah. deeper into that. But, but the main point here is that Mike makes fun of me for, uh, <laughs> the moments when I spot Dracula references, Mina, the name Mina Harker. <laughs> Uh, the, the Dracula conspiracy goes deep. We'll have to de- dedicate a specific episode for the this dra- one. <laughs> Dracula DeLillo. Uh, Count DeLillo. So that, well, that's what we'll title it. Should we uh, talk about uh, Fordham University? Here? Or is there more to say about it? Oh, Just uh, curious about that. Is there anything there that we... This interview quote from a... Around the time of Falling Man, so 2007, I think, uh, DeLillo is interviewed and says some of the same things about his reading as a parky. He mentions Henry James there, which I thought was an interesting addition. And then he sums this up by saying, um, not knowing that I would become a writer, certainly not knowing that at all for several years, but I suppose I was beginning to sense the power of serious literature. Um, But again, you get the sense that, and maybe this is obscured somewhat by the way in which, the genre of kind of young adult reading has certainly grown in our time that, you know, not that I would, but that DeLillo says he's not a serious reader, but he's reading very serious literature for a 14 year old or even a 16 year old. Yeah. These aren't comic books. No, it's quite a, quite a leap. The Henry James is interesting. I mean, you think of the names when Henry James comes up, this kind of expat literature, Ah, the ambassadors. ambassadors. I mean, that's what comes to yeah, it comes to mind. And we mind. have a protagonist named James Axton. Um, That's right. Interestingly, yeah, and I, I mean, I suppose we could go in through Hemingway uh, as also, well. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. Did we mention with Enzone that there, it seems like a kind of retelling of the Sun Also Rises uh, in a way? We have Bloomberg as the Robert Cohn. Uh, figure and Gary as a kind of Jake Barnes with the anyway. It's hard so to stick references. to the facts. <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah, right. It's hard this to stick our, to the this facts. This is our fact-bound session, and yet we immediately are kind of making the facts into a kind of fiction. But right. in his own telling of his right. own story, Delillo is 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 doing the same thing. I feel so. We have to be a bit easy on ourselves. Yeah. When he says that you know he's beginning to sense the power of serious literature. Is that a deflection from more concrete details, right. perhaps? Or is this the, 
the biography are these the important parts of the biography of a writer? Yeah, yeah. And you have a writer who certainly hasn't shied away from engaging with genre and the generic, but there are other interview moments where he's asked directly about running dog and players as genre inspired pieces. And you wonder, and he says, Oh, I've only read a handful or very few detective novels. I don't read that stuff. Yeah, The answer is no, but the movies are really where, you know, there's a kind of, um, in a sense, and we'll, uh, I think we'll pick up a, a quote or two about, you know, just the, the great influence of art museums and movie going right. know, on his career. Um, but first he has to go to college where we have, I guess like two or three lines, one liners that he is great for, uh, uh, at, about his time at Fordham university, which would have been from 1954 to 58. And so I guess he would have been 21, uh, graduating in 1958, uh, if he graduated in the spring of 58, um, from Fordham with a BA, he says, I didn't study much of anything. I majored in something called communication arts. <laughs> so you can see that autodidact, uh, identity even through college. Mm-hmm. Um, and he also says that he, uh, this is, uh, pointed out by Fordham university itself in a kind of alumni piece, uh, he calls himself the only guy in America who walked to college. And then finally, uh, from this period, this is, I, I think, says so much about the early work. The Jesuits taught me to be a failed ascetic for him, of course, being a Jesuit college. Yeah, that's the, I mean, all of those, all of those quotes are great <laughs> for their own reason. I mean, communication arts, you think that you'd be able to communicate clearly what would what would be what would be in that? Notably, not English literature, yeah. which I assume was a, was an option. I think of communication arts over. You know, this is. Um, I think of it as a kind of jock major or something like that. Over, you know, when you a little um, more light. I mean, I don't want to be held to that as some kind <laughs> of you know, judgment or something of the, of the field. But right, I, and and one you wonder was this kind of he did go into advertising, as we'll say, but like was this. You know, was he prepared for that uh, in any real way with communication arts? And, uh, you know, is there a kind of desire to stay outside of what we see as this kind of serious intellectual growth that he clearly did, you know, by the time he was in his young 20s and sort of starting his career a few years after this? Oh, these quotes, for as much as they illuminate, they also deepen the enigma of how did this happen? Where did did DeLillo come from? Like there's this moment of, and it's, it's not just a moment. It's, it's obviously over a period of time, but uh, I I feel like there is a, there's a deep enigma of, of how did this happen? That statements such as the Jesuits taught me to be a failed ascetic. It's both a movement towards uh, clarifying that enigma, but it itself is enigmatic. Yet it's, that's that's a gem that can that can clarify so many of the protagonists, right? That that he goes this kind on. of quasi priestliness or quasi sainthood or quasi asceticism that especially in Endzone is kind of the the, the name of the game in yeah. terms of um, putting all these figures together. Absolutely, Bucky, even Bucky Wonderlick in yeah. Jones Street. This this Failed Messiah. It's baffling because it's also somewhat an accomplishment it seems to be mm-hmm. a failed a failed ascetic 
it seems like he's both clinging to that asceticism still, but tempering it with the failure. It, it's, it's, it's both at yeah. the same time. Well, there's a kind of, I mean, you could say there's a recognition. He seems to, I mean, this is, he's commenting on from 30 years after the fact. And so who knows what age 20 in a theology class, you know, which it, clearly he was in some theology class or another uh, at Fordham. There's maybe a kind of recognition by this point in the career that he was kind of learning certain elements of, of a kind of existentialism, maybe that can be associated with or assimilated to asceticism, but without the kind of firm belief in the divine that is so, you know, there's so much skepticism about, but also envy of the kind of true believer uh, throughout DeLillo that, uh, but it clearly gives him a kind of vocabulary with which to work in all these kind of um, incongruous ways right? mm-hmm. to make the football players be the, we don't, n- nobody comes to see theologians run pass patterns as one of the, one of Gary's coaches. Says. And yet we have Creed uh, himself, ah. a type of failed <laughs> ascetic in his, uh, in his little chamber downstairs, the right? The of Creed's uh, uh, in general. I guess. Yeah. For however skeptical DeLillo was of a potentially religious worldview or asceticism in general, this statement shows us, the power of such a strong worldview in itself, mm-hmm. asceticism as way of life, asceticism as kind of a, a technology of interpretation. It's tied up with Catholicism as well for him. I want to, I want to go back to this quote um, yeah. that comes from Leclerc, uh, the Leclerc interview in 1979, him talking about Catholicism. Uh, Being raised as a Catholic was interesting because the ritual had elements of art to it, and it prompted feelings that art sometimes draws out of us. I think I reacted to it the way I react today to theater. Sometimes it was awesome, sometimes it was funny. High funeral masses were a little of both, and they're among my warmest childhood memories. I, I get the sense here that he's participating in it, but he's not he's not subscribing to it. He is getting the experience without submitting. He's understanding what Catholicism makes visible and what it also makes invisible. Just the the power of that ideology. Yeah. Well, we haven't gotten there yet, but it's Owen Bredemoss in the names inspiring tap with the story of his, in that case, Pentecostal Mm -hmm. uh, upbringing that, but is a scene of being a child, um, I think it's in Nebraska, right, where where Owen is from, uh, not being able to fulfill the ritual, you know, the the, the glossolalia, (laughs) in that case, (laughs) tongue-tied, and he runs away, (laughs) runs out into the rain. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, you are, um, you know, capturing with that quote from the Leclerc interview, uh, the sense that he... He recognizes the power of ritual and the need for ritual, but as he says, both awesome as in awe-inspiring and funny. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it was awesome, sometimes it was funny. <laughs> and man, that is all over the, the works. Because, you know, when I was gonna thinking of these priestly, quasi-priestly figures, Jack Gladney in White Noise is certainly in his robes, you know, evocative of a kind of priest or maybe Puritan minister. And that's when he's, maybe he's writing about Fordham and the Jesuits through that, those images, right? The kind of American environments faculty at, 
the college on the hill. I love that. In, in a way that is so contorted and sublimated by that point in the career. Of course, it doesn't read as autobiographical, but there is some element of the Fordham background Absolutely. and the Catholic background there. And even, even if he parodies uh, that whole institution, not only of a, a religious institution, but also an academic institution, he doesn't belittle it. He respects right. the power yeah. of it. And that's the amazing thing. I feel like a lesser writer would would become petty and start ridiculing yeah. with a Jesuit. Maybe this is part of a Jesuit <laughs> education. Parentheses, Jesuits are known for prizing education. Oh, most right? definitely. Yeah. And the, the, the teaching priesthood. Yeah. Yes. Being meticulous. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we have that underworld scene of naming the parts of the is it a boot or a shoe? A shoe. It's yeah. a shoe. And we're doing the physics of language. And if, if you bring up just Jesuits and DeLillo, like that's kind of the, the moment par excellence. Yeah. Right? But we're saying that there are many kind of Jesuit like figures long before that, in a way that makes this question of the biographical, the autobiographical, very interesting. And there's right? also this kind of, uh, I mean, I didn't have the privilege of being taught by Jesuits myself. <laughs> I wish I did. But uh, there's this sense of like the, there's like an inner, an inner mystery uh, to the whole thing. Is there not? I mean, that is part of the religious mysteries, I think. But there's a code, I yeah. think. And uh, I think of the, just, you know, the, the kind of greatest contemporary survival of the Jesuit way would be Ignatius and the spiritual exercises and and there's that I think there is that sense that DeLillo brings out in various works that not only is it mass ritual but it's kind of daily prayerfulness maybe or a sense that spiritual spirituality does need to be exercised does need a kind of workout, discipline in a sense yeah there's which is discipline. interesting to think of in terms of his kind of preference for sports <laughs> yeah. metaphors and, and athletes in a way as 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 ascetics you know um in the texas heat of the desert uh, but uh absolutely always, so yeah. we have multiple systems always with delillo these are systems that he experienced firsthand and that we're arguing were and are important for a large part of the career. Yeah. Yeah. These Fordham years are richer than I was expecting in once we get talking about all the associations with it, but he was a local, so he could walk to walk to college. <laughs> yeah. well, um, what, what do you make of that? <laughs> well, it is interesting. I don't know. We, we don't have a kind of granular enough view of his moves to know when he gets to uh, the you know lower Manhattan as a as a kind of neighborhood that that we would assume he lives in for some period you know Great Jones Street kind of emerges from that experience although you know I can't say for certain where to place him on the New York map so this is a kind of um, a localness that yeah he uh, he kind of doesn't come back to in terms of the actual sites of the the Bronx for a long time. Um, Underworld really being the, the kind of key work in that regard. Should we talk about his uh, sort of beginning short story career? Yeah, let's do that. And he graduates college in 58, and then the 60s are upon us. But And we have sort of two takes on the 60s in a way, because DeLillo publishes his earliest short story in 1960, and uh, I guess we should list those publication dates, even though 
as we've found, we there's so much to say about this early Delilah that we're going to have to do a, a separate episode on that. But the uh, the stories that we have in mind here are in 1960, he publishes The River Jordan in Epic, which is out of Cornell University. And then he publishes in spring of 1962, Take the A Train, also in Epic, and then keeps publishing in Epic uh, with Spaghetti and Meatballs in spring of 1965. And then we have the story Coming Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, which is published in the Kenyon Review in 1966. We'll also note uh, that Baghdad Towers West, uh, another of his short stories, is published in 1968. We could say a lot about all these stories uh, in a a way, but Mike, what do you want to say about this string of publications, the first publications? What types of stories is the specifically... Italian American, yeah, focus and character, yeah, and uh, mostly of the Bronx neighborhood, of, you know, among the kind of Italian American neighborhood. So you've got the the local color that perhaps Delolo learned was possible from the Studs Lonergan <laughs> trilogy that he mentions in that interview, right? Mm-hmm. You, it is possible to write about not necessarily yourself, but what you see, you know, write what you know. It seems like he takes this to heart uh, in the first, the first three stories uh, in particular. Although River Jordan isn't necessarily um, Italian in flavor, uh, that's more of the religious extremism, yeah, yeah. <laughs> side of things, but. right? Yeah, I mean, it's really take the A train where he has a, a character named uh, Angelo, or is it Angel or Angelo, Angelo. Santulo? Angelo Cavallo, or Angel Horse, as we were uh, suggesting. And then Spaghetti and Meatballs, where the, the two main characters are Santulo and, and um, D'Annunzio, that contain this focus on on the Italian-American life, the, the kind of immigrant life of parents, grandparents. You know, the, these are, a, this is a, man in his young twenties writing about a range of figures in these stories, many, you know, divorce from his uh, wife is a, is an issue and, and take the A train. So there's a kind of, there's a kind of, you know, understandable writing beyond his uh, years and experience uh, in this and picking up people from the neighborhood. I mean, it, there, there are elements of a kind of Joyceanness here of the Joyce of Dubliners. Yeah, uh, totally. In a sense. Yeah. Totally. Reading these for the first time recently, I was struck by, first of all, how he wasn't calling himself in these days. There's one story where he's credited as Donald R. DeLillo. Donald Richard DeLillo. Right? And yeah. reading, especially uh, Spaghetti Meatballs and Take the A-Train, there's a direct connection between the Delillo, <laughs> the Italian name, and the the Italian characters. Yeah, he's not. It seems it doesn't seem like he's hiding anything, or he's not trying to artistically redirect the attention away from what might be the simplest connection to make, which is, hey, this is an Italian American writing about Italian Americans. There's a there's almost a refreshing simplicity. Yeah, to yeah, that. and you know we have a kind of thesis to pursue about how across these first eight or so years of the sixties, he becomes the writer of Americana. Uh, Certainly we see 
Baghdad Towers West as the a key to the voice of David Bell, who is notably Anglo, uh, you know, the blue-eyed boy who is does not have any of these Italian, you know, the connections. Wasp. He's the wasp, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and, um, but again, we, we almost need another episode to pursue that thesis in, in a way. We'll about get there. The, yeah. The growth of the voice, because the other thing about these early stories is, you know, for a writer who would make such hay with these early novels out of first person, all these ones we've mentioned up through, up to Back to Towers West are in the third person and a kind of very, you know, very much a kind of urban realism is is what characterizes them. The subway as setting and take the A train. Absolutely. The street in spaghetti and meatballs. Um, you know, the and and very thoroughly realistically described. Um the you know, uh Emil Burke has that kind of there are such great descriptions of him in um the River Jordan as his body, you know, just his bodily experience of with all these kind of theological thoughts going on in his head. Yeah. There's remarkable glimmers of the DeLillo to come in all of these. And uh, one thing I'm curious about your opinion. One thing I was struck by was attention to dialect and, and speaking. There's, yeah, there's a lot of, especially in take the A train. Yeah. Yeah. That's to me. And spaghetti, spaghetti Spaghetti meatballs meatballs, Yeah. But it's almost, it's almost jarring how, how far he takes it. Was it a, a sign of the times? I'm not sure, but there's a certain abandon to that approach, but also a, a dedication to, to capture it yeah. at the same time. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it, it's something for us to pursue kind of where this, indeed, I think, you know, the ethnic DeLillo is, whether from an interview or not, the kind of way of considering this. And, you know, you've mentioned uh, the Studs Lonigan trilogy, which i haven't read. I think most people, Farrell is not a a kind of major figure, but thinking, you know, he seems to be learning from a variety of ethnic writers. We might say, uh, we were, you know, uh, should I read what he has to say about Saul Bellow? Yeah, please. Um, we can't, this is him talking in 2010 about Herzog, which is a novel of Bellows from 1964, but you have the sense with a reference to the earlier novel, The Victim, that DeLillo was certainly reading Bellow in a way that could have influenced these early stories uh, all along. He's asked when he's won the Saul Bellow Award, um, he's asked by this interviewer uh, from Penn, the uh, organization, it's Penn's top honor for American fiction. Are you an admirer of Bellow's work? And he answers this. I still have my old paperback copy of Herzog, Fawcett Crest, 95 cents, a novel I recall reading with great pleasure. It wasn't the first Bellow novel I encountered. That was the victim whose opening sentence, quote, on some nights, New York is as hot as Bangkok, seemed a novel in itself, at least to a New Yorker. Bellow was a strong force in our literature, making leaps from one book to the next. He was one of the writers who expanded my sense of the American novel's range, or maybe a better word for Bellow, its clutch, its grasp. And it's a special honor to be awarded a prize that bears his name. And he, you know, he's sort of capturing, I think, in the, the, the transformation in Bellow's own work, the, the kind of great range that uh, appears. It's, you know, many, you had to notice that Bellow in The Adventures of Augie March really changes, you know, the, the, the register of the prose mm-hmm. in, in Bellow's particular case, but just the kind of 
American idiom that he um, kind of creates and goes on, you know, creating mm-hmm. over time. Yeah, that's an interesting, interesting touchstone um, uh, that he would bring that up in that case. Yeah, in reference to uh, winning this year's Saul Bellow Award. I mean, I think there's the story of DeLillo's influences, especially in this kind of early period, are, you know, they have to be more fully told because you people do fasten on the kind of Hemingway and Joyce references, uh, the modernist uh, kind of references in the perky passage. But then, you know, at other times he says, uh, you know, nobody thinks about Norman Mailer in relationship to me, but he was incredibly important to me. And he, he refers to sort of taking a, having a copy of advertisements for myself and kind of reading from it, you know, recurrently in ways that I think that connection is, is waiting to be uh, fully examined, you know, the, the, the mailer influence on DeLillo before they become authors of uh, dual books about Lee Harvey Oswald right. much later in the career. I know the critic Aaron DeRosa does uh, consider the, the mailer connection. We'll, we'll be getting to there yeah, uh, well, perhaps uh, later. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, before we, we do, we should read some of this, although not in dialect, please. Like, I, I know you're dying to just show off your Italian-American dialect performance. Well, but. I'll do my best to exercise a bit of restraint here, but okay. we'll read out right. a little bit of spaghetti and meatballs just to bring some of this flavor to yeah. and I think this, what we're talking about. This contains the title phrase that I'll pick up with a bit of the description, but the kind of context for this is these two men, one of whom, Santulo, has been evicted. And so all his possessions are around him on the street from his apartment. And then he's having this extended day conversation, lunch with his friend, Denunzio. Mm-hmm. Then he and the old man, that's uh, Santulo and Denunzio, move their own chairs back into the shade, one on either side of the kitchen chair. That's some son of a bitch of an umbrella, Denunzio said. I used to use it to catch eels off City Island. Dip it in the water, dip it out, and you got yourself some eels. For such an ugly fish to taste so delicious is something hard to believe. Maybe there is a god after all. They're one of my favorite dishes, those black skinny things. Eels. Even the name is black and skinny. Eels. But the taste. The taste, the nunzio said. The taste is everything. The looks, nothing. What would you eat, Santulo said, if you could have only one thing to eat for the rest of your life? Ah, a difficult question. The old man hesitated, deep in thought, and put his fingertips to his lips, tasting the question, savoring it. A difficult question, yes, but a good one. It has definite merit, Rico. Let me think, let me think. He joined his thickly veined copper hands, as though in prayer, and rested his chin on top of them. Does it have to be absolutely one thing, or can it be several things that go together naturally? It can be several things that go together. And all I ask is some bread, some cheese, and a glass of wine. It is simple, and yet it is everything. That is all I would need. He nodded, convinced. Good, good. It shows a lot of thought. It is classic. Me? I settle for spaghetti and meatballs. And if it were to be allowed, a glass of cold red wine mixed with cream soda, if it were to be allowed. You can't argue with a choice like that. Yours is good, too. They are both good choices. Here comes the food, Denunzio said. Ah, the boy with the food. 
we'll end our reading there, but the boy they've sent off to the grocery store to get, they basically name about 20 things and then he, they just get what you remember, but focus on the salami and bread, which is uh, what they tell him. But So uh, this is real yeah. slice of life stuff. It is. Right. Yeah, this a moment is, in time, an afternoon, an hour or so. Here. There really isn't much plot to talk about. There mm-hmm. really isn't much pressing crisis to talk about other than the fact of being evicted. It's funny that um, Cavallo also is on kind of the lamb from his land. Yeah, he owes his landlord $85. Maybe this is an Italian-American thing. I don't know. (laughs) These these ethnic... They they both have uh, divorces, uh, wives leaving them or kicking them out. uh, You know, it's just a good thing that we're not trying to voice the father figure in Take the A-Tramp because then we get into some hot... <laughs> there is uh, quite a scene, and I think it's in the basement where he, the boy is called down at age twelve or something. And well, we should describe. We, it yeah, now, we, but... we 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 won't get there right. I'm so I, I don't mean to deflect from. <laughs> it, it, he is taught how to be a man uh, in very tangible physical terms, in old say. world ways, old world ways. Yeah, uh, but yeah. here we have just almost a. A relax. There's a relaxedness. Yeah. To it, there's a there's more of a, a painting of a scene rather than a building of uh, of a story. And there's something very refreshing. There's something very uh, humanistic, actually. Yeah. About about this yeah. story. There's no. You know, the whole point of the story is that when you've been evicted, you're out on the street, you're homeless. You can only think about kind of. There's no quest to go on here, you know. Um, uh, there's uh, only the moment to be taken in. And, you know, I've said, and I think you agree, it's a very Hemingway-esque set of values being announced or supported here. This idea that you should focus on, well, not your last meal. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it, it, but it's as though they're saying, <laughs> right. yeah, they're saying, what would you eat for the rest of your right. life? But there's a sense that it's like the prisoner on death row or something. What would you uh, eat uh, here? And uh, it has a series of answers. Yeah. There's also a sense of the dramatic instinct as well. You've got a couple characters mm. talking on the street, right? Yeah. It's, um, you know, it's not quite a one act play, but you can almost, uh, you can almost see the, the dramatic DeLillo at work. You can also think, uh, think about the dialogue to to come in the later work as well just the kind of repartee i do i I do feel like there's certain differences in this story compared to to what comes of course yeah we don't quite have that uh that non sequitur twist that delillo likes to introduce later on yet right there are some flashes of that i think in river jordan in some of the dialogue that about these kind of theological subjects that have these sort of lowbrow answers in a, in a way <laughs> right. and, and yeah. characters sort of, you know, knock each other around verbally. Right. But then like the, when I, what I think is in contrast to what you're bringing out of this kind of simple dramatic story is take the A train, which is so internal, right? It's all internal monologue while riding the subway all night and, and quite, you know, ponderous and in, in by DeLillo standards that we've come to know from the later works where there's a kind of depth of psychology for Cavallo in that case that is kind of fruitfully stayed away from in 
other short stories and certainly in, in Americana, although not, I don't know. I, I think I'll stand by that, even though I don't want to suggest there's a kind of shallowness in, in other psychologies uh, that, that DeLillo creates. There's a death word tending plot in a train. There's a, there's a, yeah. there's a tension, there's a drive, there's a crisis, there's a, there's a paranoia and a, a regret that links it to uh, the river Jordan. And I don't know, more generally speaking, the the emotional tenor of of some of the later work, it feels like yeah, there's some well, stakes, right? Yeah, and I mean uh, Oswald exactly. as a young man exactly. on the subway at the beginning of Libra is definitely indebted to take the A train in a in a way that I mean you're getting at to the general sense. I think we have that Delillo has a lot of his materials in a sense available to him early in this, in these early stories, but it, you know, he is going to be coming back to those materials in, in way, in new ways, but also ways that only seem new. If you don't, you kind of have the 20 year old short story in mind, which of course most readers don't or, and he is certainly, you know, he's not, he's not retelling um, these stories. Although, you know, it's interesting I, to think of like a story like Cosmopolis as being somehow connected to this, you know, uh, the, the thing that has gotten uh, Cavallo and take the A-Train in trouble is he's a sports better and he's in debt and people are after him. In addition to his landlord, you know, they've come looking for him. And this idea that DeLillo finds in that story, this way of writing about the kind of financial destruction that in Cosmopolis, of course, is like a billion times bigger. You know, we have the billionaire currency trader, um, with the literal vehicle of this, ah, yeah. this drive. Not right? riding the subway around all night, but riding the limo around all yeah. day. <laughs> I almost kind of think of Game 6 a little bit uh, as ah, well with all yeah. of the taxis. But yeah. uh, I, love that. I love that connection. I feel like you could yeah, really the, run wild with that. The vehicular DeLillo. <laughs> and so, the, the, the financial bets uh, DeLillo. So I wonder if what we're saying, crash. if what we're saying, Jeff, is that these stories, these early stories are both very tied to a local, personal New York that DeLillo experienced in his, I mean, throughout his whole life, but right. in his young life. And they are not separate from the DeLillo that we know, the, yeah. the major DeLillo. This is minor DeLillo, right? These aren't even anthologized in The Angel Esmeralda. I personally think that Baghdad Towers West is the best of these stories mm-hmm. and that it could very much go head-to-head with any of The Angel Esmeralda stories. But they're organic in the sense of early development, local color, but also they're precursors to the work that, that comes in a, in a very natural way. You're laying out a kind of transformation that we obviously have 20 more hours of thoughts about because, right, there is this ability to kind of make the scale and impact of these local stories so much bigger. And maybe Cosmopolis is, is a kind of good example of that, this sense that not only do you have a very personal story of being in debt, but a kind of whole economy being in debt, but in, in um, or being possessed by debt in, in Cosmopolis, but that's a kind of, you know, clearly we're dealing with two very different spheres in, in, in a sense, but it is clear that he thinks that 
rather than telling the Italian American immigrant story in these kind of localized ways in the stories that's there is something about, well, how can I depart from New York, depart from local color in a sense into this kind of evocation of America as nation that has all these kind of other locales that are kind of not of his experience. You know, when you think about end zone and he had been to West Texas, I guess, but it's a, it's a made up America, but bigger subjects, it's big, yeah. bigger settings, more universal in, in their and allegorical. And yeah, import, absolutely. Right? I yeah. feel like he figured out that it was confining these local color settings and, and characters and scenes. Although in Ratner star, the, <laughs> the the flashbacks for Billy Twilligs yeah. of childhood are Bronx episodes. In Americana we have Arendella. We have uh we have these characters that kind of erupt <laughs> through wherever we are throughout the later work. And it's a testament to the importance of of just the Bronx, I suppose. Yeah. To DeLillo. Yeah. And they appear, though, as, as more as characters in the sense that we mean maybe, yeah, more on the order of caricature or kind of a quick portrait. Rather yeah. than, it's not all we get. It, right. Yeah. They're contextualized and they are marginal. They're marginalized yeah. in some yeah. respect. Yeah. But yeah. they're still there. Yeah. And they're usually yeah. pretty hilarious as well. Yeah. <laughs> right. I feel like we should turn to the other kind of key material of the 60s which is DeLillo's day job, which he very interestingly quits just to quit, as he says. I guess this is more a kind of summary of what he's uh, done, but just to lay it out, he works for Ogilvy Benson Mather, an advertising firm that becomes better known as Ogilvy Mather over the years, and he works directly for uh, the kind of great advertising man, David Ogilvy, who is kind of generally credited with in ways that we maybe can lay out transforming advertising um, in many key ways. Uh, He works there for um, about five years from 1959 to 64. Um, And then uh, this is a kind of list of accounts that he worked on that I'm drawing from. You mentioned earlier, Aaron DeRose's uh, really great article about this kind of world of uh, Madison Avenue that, that DeLillo was a part of. Uh, DeRosa writes, uh, DeLillo began work with the Sears account before his responsibilities expanded to include Keep NYC Clean, a kind of you know, local campaign, the P&O Orient Cruise Line, and the U.S. Travel Service. He was promoted to supervisor in 1963. And I'll just follow that up with DeLillo talking in that 2007 interview with Mark Benelli about Falling Man He summarizes his work in advertising in this way. Um, He says uh, he worked on print ads, very undistinguished accounts. I hadn't made the leap to television. I was just getting good at it when I left, and maybe that was a secret reason for me to leave. I quit my job so I could go to the movies on weekday afternoons. And I guess this would have been in 1964 there. So... Man, um, <laughs> I, I feel like, well, just one more, I guess, I'll, I'll read about those afternoons and what he did uh, with them. He describes himself in the 60s as, um, uh, I did some short stories at that time, but very infrequently, and we've discussed the range of stories. 
I quit my job just to quit. I didn't quit my job to write fiction. I didn't want to work anymore. I think more than writers, major influences on me have been European movies and jazz and abstract expressionism. All sorts of things converging here in this kind of explanation of how his career as a novelist, the writer of Americana, uh, begins. Um, it, but what, how should we look at this, I guess? Well, it's an explanation, but it also is another one of those enigma moments. Yeah. It's almost like, what? <laughs> you, you almost want to ask, like, huh? I quit my job just to quit. I didn't, I didn't quit my job to write fiction. I just didn't want to work anymore. I feel like there's a, you know, I'll, I'll but gen- we don't know of any like inheritance or something that he has to support himself with or what. Well, right? even even just the motivation, like I'll I'll gently make an accusation of being a bit disingenuous, perhaps because he was writing, right? Yeah, he, he was writing, and uh, Americana was on the horizon. Maybe subconsciously, like this is the move to make, and he followed through with it, and he's not quite admitting. Um, yeah, yeah. When we talked about Americana, I think it's that essay we read from the Meditations on Americana. He says, I started this novel in 1966, finished it in 1970. He says, It took me about four years. Right. And then, of course, he had the 600 and something page manuscript that he cut down to like a 350 page the magenta version typescript. And yeah, but, you know, I agree that there's this sense that there's something else going on here that, that he's maybe just glossing over in the interest of a kind of efficiency of telling the story of his life, but also only a fitful embrace of the career of writer, the career of novelist. Um, and something we didn't bring up with the short stories that seems relevant here too, is that he said, I think in an interview with Jonathan Franzen, again, many years later, he was surprised that they took at Epic his first short story. Right. And he wanted to reply, I can do better. <laughs> <laughs> but it was almost a bit of a, does he use the word joke? I'm not sure. Like, it, well, was, it, it was just a joke. Uh, yeah. Or, you know, yeah. Like, it, I mean, clearly this is a, the outcome of serious work. But the idea of kind of becoming a published writer was always a kind of contingent thing for him, you know, in ways that certainly have been generative, right? I think for his career. In a later interview, he does mention, I think the first three books as not being very serious books as as well. He really gets serious with the names. It was the names. Yeah. He even even includes Ratner's star in one of those, like, which, which is insane. Like there's, there's an insanity to even trying to be on board with with that, because Ratner's Star is nothing if not a, a a work that requires intense discipline to read. Right. Not a, notwithstanding writing that. Thing. Right. Like you don't just wake up having having written that thing. Right. Just like you don't wake up having read that thing. So <laughs> this type of uh, almost like nonchalance. There's a. There's an interesting posture. Well, it's it, it's funny. It, it it's it seems like the diminishment of ego, and yet there's such confidence in the work. We know the work, and we know that it has voices like David Bell that are so assured, and we also know that the we marvel at the fact that these books were published kind of nine to twelve months one after the other. You know, I mean, to go after Radnor Star, he he says he wrote. Running Dog in four months, which 
okay, maybe it's a slight DeLillo work overall, but at the same time, yeah. you know, we're, we're not talking about any, <laughs> anything that would, should merely take you four months, uh, to, to toss off. So, you know, there's a kind of, maybe almost a, you know, is graphomania a kind of like idea to bring to bear here? He clearly can work very quickly and very efficiently mm-hmm. in a way, even as he's describing these things as sort of larks or, or something like that. You know? <laughs> it's yeah. it's enigmatic. Yeah. And uh, an, another insight we can draw from from these admissions is that it seems like he poses an important part of becoming a writer for him as not so much writing, but uh, as a consumer of culture, mm. I, he, he says that he he didn't quit his job to write. He quit his job to go to the movies. <laughs> I mean, that's kind <laughs> and of Tonyoni retrospectives yeah. all day. Yeah, so, so like that or, yeah. plays back to the autodidact uh, point yeah. that you were making before. That for him, uh, in his beginning and you know throughout his life, uh, interacting, engaging with culture is is the education that he wanted and needed uh, of his own initiative and of his own accord. Yeah. And you're making me think too, that like David essentially using the road trip to quit the job in New York is a kind of autobiographical tale, you know, very much expanded because he's making a movie with his days, but uh, not just going to the movies, but there's a kind of, you know, we read that, I think we, we read and when we talked about those books and we in general read this as a kind of self-destructive urge into Lola's characters to kind of subvert their own achievement or place. You know, Gary is driven to extremes by the notion that he would be a leader of the team, a, <laughs> a, a co-captain. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it, it's interesting that DeLillo has worked out this kind of life, uh, you know, uh, where he has produced from this kind of self-made margin. If we think of, you know, um, this kind of, you know, quitting just to quit. And um, we don't know anything about his finances or anything at the time, but certainly we don't have a kind of evidence that he was living <laughs> at all in a high way. And maybe it's the like, well, I'll make myself an ascetic in a way in order to produce the kind of work yeah. about asceticism that I want. He talks later on about this one cold water flat that he mm. was living in for, for some With the time. refrigerator in the <laughs> bathroom. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, I, I mean, there's a kind of geography of yeah, that place. That something like that. Yeah. It's got great Jones uh, vibes. Right. To yeah. It, perhaps. One room. Um, but one thing that strikes me as well is just kind of how risky such a thing yeah. feels like uh, in in terms of just kind of not dropping out, but um, not even dropping off, but maybe dropping into something. There's kind of a, a remarkable, I want to say confidence, but it doesn't even seem like the right word, almost a self even self-determination doesn't yeah. feel like the right word. Well, in a, in a sense, we're buying into the myth <laughs> by talking so much about his quitting when, as Aaron DeRose's article shows, he seems to have learned quite a bit from being an advertising copywriting man that, you know, DeRosa kind of takes some of his very epigrammatic sentences that we are fond of quoting, you know, uh, we, we can't get enough of them, and thinks of them in terms of the 
writing of a headline for a, a kind of, you know, full page magazine spread or something like that. And that he learned this kind of technique from David Ogilvy, who interestingly has the same name as his first protagonist. Not that David is all that uncommon a name. Still. Um, it has biblical meanings and so on. Clearly, again, there was this kind of, that the institution of advertising clearly fed into his work in ways that weren't simply having it be the object of satire, which it clearly is, but it's, it's a kind of method, uh, as well, a kind of pithy pithiness of writing, um, that, um, DeRosa argues for in, in convincing ways. Yeah, and a genre unto itself, mm-hmm. the advertising novel, uh, which is something that I don't have much experience with. Well, like with The Man in the Gray Flannel Suit is yeah. the kind of archetypal version. Yeah. Where you have uh, kind of a classic scenario of, you know, quitting the job or dropping out to write the, the great American novel, or at least every advertising. Or writing it at your desk. Yeah, exactly. Everyone like has the great American yeah. novel in their, in their bottom drawer. Yeah. Right? The genre of that, um, in light of both Americana and the Lillo's life, it's a fraught relationship, I think. And yeah. The, even, even that Americana and the Lillo's life, the, the fact and fiction, boundary between those two are are permeable and still needing combing out i think for any serious biographer which mm. uh you know that's a topic <laughs> unto unto itself that's if itself, that will yeah. if that will come uh one day right yeah and what would would we necessarily would such a figure see through these myths in, in some way or see them as as myths meditations I mean, it, you know it I think DeLillo seems to have this uncanny ability to kind of make, you know, uh, description and story out of seemingly, well, research, certainly in the case of Radner's Star, but, you know, he kind of writes about so many locales that aren't local to him. But I, I thought it was notable, I think in another interview, the Sears account that I mentioned him working on, I think that's, he, he writes about Sears tires uh, at one point, and that's where he gets the material for the test track in, um, <laughs> in Americana that is so made to the circles of hell, you know, the ninth circle of hell, maybe. The ad man's uh, revenge. Eh? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he talks about kind of working in that locale, and I think he said something like, somebody handed me a copy of Pynchon's V when I was uh, working there, and so that which would have been published in 63 and he's mm-hmm. only working until 64 at the, in the advertising firm. But that strikes me as, as a kind of interesting connection between our life and the fiction. I'd also say that, you know, he writes about TV guys in Americana, clearly influenced by the ad work and the, uh, and so on. But as he says here, I hadn't made the leap to television. So that's a kind of, you know, parallel sort of office that he concentrates on, um, undoubtedly with lots of material of office politics and so on. To yeah. On. And even if he wasn't working on it, the way that Aaron DeRosa portrays David Ogilvy, yeah, yeah. Ogilvy in that line of work, there, there was a pedagogy and mm-hmm. uh, a training process. Uh, Ogilvy had a, uh, a program in which he data driven in, in part. You know. Yeah. And even 
even almost like quasi-manifesto lists how to operate, how to work. Yeah. Uh, Aaron DeRozan makes the case that DeLillo got an education. He not only was uh, participating in in that line of work, but uh, he was he was trained in a style, in almost an aesthetics of advertising that was grist for his creative mill. Also grist for his kind of attention to numbers and, and, and data, uh, perhaps. I mean, it's an aspect of Ogilvy's kind of way of working. He was a protege of uh, the Gallup, of Gallup polling. And, and so um, that works its way into Delillo's lexicon, certainly, and all the attention yeah. to, to counting and numbers. Systems um, analysts and risk analysts and just surveyors and pollsters and the ways of, of quantifying yeah. and, and dealing with data. Yeah. Really, right? Yeah. Well, we sort of have two points to really get to with a kind of Gaddis quote at, at the end, but we want it, we can't leave the 60s without talking about the Kennedy assassination. And so this uh, from 1963, we thought we would locate DeLillo on the day of the Kennedy assassination and uh, say some things about that. He's been asked by interviewers, of course, around the time of Libra in 1988. Where were you on November 22nd, 1963? And he says this, eating lunch on New York's West Side with a couple of friends in a seafood restaurant called Davy Jones. I don't have a clear memory of the rest of the day. I guess I watched a little television on Sunday, late Sunday. I did watch the Ruby shooting of Oswald for a couple of hours, but I didn't watch much of the funeral, which was Monday. And he, he adds these details uh, in other interviews that speak to a, some small bit of the paranoia and coincidence that pervades, of course, so much of the work, but especially Libra. That same weekend of the assassination, he says, I had to fly to Detroit. It seemed to me the whole nation was steeped in death. And the last thing I wanted to do was get on a plane. And sure enough, our engine caught fire and we had to return to the airport, make an emergency landing. That's from a 1991 interview, mm-hmm. the same one with Gordon Byrne. DeLillo, not only, it, you know, I think he sees the kind of trace of what he would end up writing about in Libra in that event. And, and also steeped in death is almost a more apt description of uh, white noise three years earlier. Certainly he seems to, in the 80s, have come to this conclusion, you know, upon returning from the Middle East and Athens that... Um, you know, he's confronting a culture that is deathly in so many right. ways, and that's a new balance in his work. But I don't know, yeah, uh, about to, what to say about this uh, well, plane. It, it certainly is a moment right out of DeLillo, the idea that your plane might be going down and then you've survived. You know, that's a that's a scene in, in several uh, novels, White Noise is one. I mean, we've got the benefit of, of looking back as well, and there is this constant subtext of uh the prophetic qualities of Delilah, yeah. but just planes on fire you know uh, brings to mind the subject that fallen man would hmm. would cover of course you know this is that that's coincidence <laughs> but yeah um yeah uh beside that point uh what did he have for lunch <laughs> <laughs> at Davy Jones it was yeah it was I, it was seafood yeah, yeah. I think it, I think of it what is the oh it's Zach's bad news is where they uh, have some drinks in uh, in Americana I've always admired that uh, bar name maybe it's based in uh, reality I don't know there's another there's another um, 
it's from that burn uh, article uh uh-huh. another quote i was working in an ad agency uh, and i was having lunch with two people and one of those individuals was herself shot and killed 10 years later murdered during a robbery in her house so the other person and i have a sense of being survivors of something something personal and significant uh-huh. uh, you know a macabre detail a morbid detail but we have three takes on this event. What do they add up to? In, yeah. In terms, of, in terms of the personal, the, the biographical significance, how do they add up, do you think? He calls uh, in Libra, he calls the Kennedy assassination the time between the shots, I think he's referring to, the seven seconds that broke the back of the American century. It is for critics, for really any reader of the whole of the career, you do see this sense that DeLillo has of the kind of danger of American life in particular, the sense that the truth is not being told, the sense that, you know, the, that power and images of power are heavily mediated, you know, all this emerges from um, this moment of the, the Kennedy assassination, the loss of innocence. I mean, I think it, it, you know, he's also doing a kind of miniature, media history and saying, I, I watched a little television. I, I, on Sunday, I did watch the Ruby shooting of Oswald for a couple of hours. I mean, uh, I think it's Nick Shea and underworld says, you know, when people, when the Kennedy assassination pe- happened, people went inside and watched TV. And so it's a moment of the televisualization of the, the culture that DeLillo's interest. The, the visual in. spectacle, having the, the pictures. Yeah. But in a sense, we're, you know, in locating ourselves in these first 30 years of life, we're able to, you know, we're, we're cheating by being able to see that he would make these claims about the transformative effect of the Kennedy assassination years later, you know, in a way that he isn't understanding of in these moments here, like everybody else, you know, this is a a shock, shocking event. It's really a you know that essay American Blood where he um, that he publishes kind of five years or so before Libro where he he kind of goes into coincidence as a as an element of this this story other American stories even eleven twenty two strikes him as a kind of doubling right in, in the the dating of the of the event right patterns um, we, I mean in a sense we have to wait to get to Libro to. <laughs> Yeah, say say much more about this. We, uh, yeah, our hands are kind of tied. Here, yeah, but um, it is it is nonetheless interesting to to get these accounts of uh, of personally how it how it impacted. Him. Yeah, uh, I mean, ironically, it's Libra itself that is of real interest here, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, but I mean, if we do, kind of, you know, we can't do any kind of causal history of these this this time, but it is 64. So just months later that he quits the advertising job as, as he says, and you Mm. do wonder, you know, is there, is there any effect that the Kennedy assassination and the kind of, um, you know, what would follow in its wake, which is really the main interest of Libra is the fact that the Warren report, which takes a couple of years at least, right. To, to come out, right in this period when DeLillo is kind of becoming the novelist, but it's the Warren report being un- unconvincing <laughs> as an account that really undoubtedly spurred 
his imagination uh, in, in some way, uh, if not with Libra on the horizon, then, you know. Yeah. Mm, that's interesting. I don't know. I don't want to make any claims about the 60s DeLillo that uh, are easily... Uh, For the official <laughs> biography, history. that would be a good yeah, question to ask. Yeah, well, what about the idea of an official biography? Should we um, suggest why we think it's maybe not coming in, in a sense? Um, or, you know, you would think DeLillo is a writer of such stature and power that this would be a project for someone to take on. But in a way, the life itself outside of the work seems maybe not a dramatic narrative for a biographer to tell. It's really hard to say because if there's anything salacious or, you know, you know what, what have you, if there's anything uh, that's just remarkably a bestseller kind of a kind of a secret it's it's unknown there aren't affairs there are there are salacious skeletons in the closet yeah yeah there there aren't kind of family conflicts that uh (laughs) you know uh come up you know and we've read rather closely the uh, this range of of interviews and people investigating you know just the delillo story. The contrast really is with this writer we mentioned before, Mailer, who not only, you know, is the life full of affairs and <laughs> attempted murders of wives <laughs> and uh, all sort of a run for mayor of New York City. I mean, the list goes on. Right. But there's so much, in fact, that not only did J. Michael Lennon write, you know, not the first biography of Mailer, but certainly a kind of comprehensive version about uh, maybe eight or 10 years ago, but it's going to be made into it or it's been optioned. Oh, really? To be made into a Netflix series. Yeah, oh, wow. The Life of Norman Mailer. I didn't hear about uh, that yet. You know, based on that, on that biography, I think it's called the double life of, of Norman Mailer. But the, you know, you can't with DeLillo, I don't think, I mean, that's an extreme of the kind of biographical art, but you know, you think of, uh, Philip Roth, who exactly that's the other is a, is another major figure. Yeah. My colleague, uh, you know, uh, Iron Adele wrote a biography of him, uh, just published uh, three or four years ago, uh, alongside other biographies. Right. Um, but there again, you have all the conflict, all the the material, the drama, and then, and then Pynchon might be the other. Example where no, we're not going to get a pension biography, but for different reasons. That's the right? other. There's plenty of mystery around the the pension life story. So, yeah, I guess it begs the question: What makes a good literary biography? I mean, what what makes it uh, not only interesting to read unto itself or for itself, but also uh, illuminating of the work? What makes a good Netflix? Uh, <laughs> sorry, just kidding. Those are different. There are different answers. Yeah, to they're, they're uh, yeah. very different answers. Yeah. Deep down, it really does come back to revolutionary solitude and mm. American privacy. DeLillo has, I, I maybe wouldn't go so far as curating uh, his image and his words, although he is selective of what uh, what he does share and what he does relate. And 
I have to say, I, I very much respect that position. Yeah. The sacrifice you make is, yeah, no, no official biography yet. Well, yeah, right. And no, I mean, what we're talking about is the kind of like, um, ways of not being a kind of literary celebrity, right? Um, because there is a kind of courting of this that takes place in various domains, mailers at an extreme, but then you have the kind of like, you know, brat pack writers of the eighties and and Ellis, where the kind of image Kalaniak as well. Yeah. The image, the life, the, the, the kind of, well, and the readership, the, the following has a sort of glamor to it or, or something like that. But yeah, you have, uh, well, uh, you have the writer alone in, in a room, uh, as the, the, uh, DeLillo story. I will say that, you know, we, and we've talked about this, that I would be fascinated by a biography that was a sort of a, what I think you'd call a critical biography, but maybe more than kind of taking on DeLillo as reader or as, you know, a literary figure primarily to, to see him as this kind of viewer of art the, the guy going to see abstract expressionism, going all day to the movies when he's quit his work, quit his job to, to think of the subject of, as DeLillo, as somebody who engages with so many uh, different art forms and strands of the, of the culture and how that informs the work. And, and, you know, in a way that kind of criticism definitely is uh, out there and continues to be generated but um, no, I love that idea. I feel like, but it's not bound into a kind of single biography yet, or yeah, an authorized <laughs> right biography. And one does wonder what would be the process of authorization. You have the Harry Ransom Center archive that has plenty of letters, you know, in it. Although I have to say, as somebody who's read a lot of those letters, you know, again, only work that is mainly of interest to you know what DeLillo says to other writers right. that, um, about his own work, about their work and so on. Um, on the note of, uh, celebrity and celebrity authors, I also think of Salinger. Mm. Um, I feel like DeLillo is in addition to just more general attitudes of privacy. I, I feel like there is a wariness to, to celebrity or, or author that type of authorship in general. I mean, Salinger and, and Mao too. Uh, yeah. I was going to say that Bill Gray is yes. the biographical figure to consider here. In addition to that is Salman Rushdie. Mm. And, uh, of course, Delillo has come to the defense of Rushdie, I think at least twice. Now. Yeah. Assigning letters and, yeah. and so on. Yeah. But it's funny because Delillo constantly emphasizes the, the force and the power and the danger uh, that the novelist should provide to society, to critiques of of culture, of government, of of civil <laughs> civil life, yeah. and yet, and yet he's 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 no pension, right? Like mm -hmm. he's uh, he's approachable if if you've got the right channels. He stops short of a of a critical moment of going beyond the books. It's almost like uh, people, some people want him to go beyond the books. I feel like his constant reply to that would be, 
It's in the books. It's already there. It's already there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think you're thinking of a particular quotation here. Um, I I have more thoughts about Valparaiso and and so on. We will get there. I, I think he's a critic of fame, fundamentally, that works against what a biography does, in a sense, which is, you know, however long the biography might be, it could be 500 or 800 pages long, but it's still this kind of encapsulation of finalization elements of a life that, you know, in a way is a kind of constant subject of Delillo's work and a constant object of undermining in a way that, well, what does stand for the self in a way, what is representative of the self, uh, you know, that is that, you know, is, is what is representative of the self, uh, interaction with other people at all, mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. mm-hmm. uh, or is it, well, solitude? Is it what happens in the room? You're hundred percent right. Well, we should share what we think of as a kind of, it's a closer for us, but it's almost a kind of epigraph for this episode and the entire idea of the writer's biography that DeLillo takes, uh, from William Gaddis's the recognitions. This is a quotation that he, uses in his uh, Jerusalem Prize acceptance speech in 1999. This speech slash essay is called A History of the Writer Alone in a Room. And Mike, do you want to read the quote from Gaddis? What is it they want from a man that they didn't get from his work? What do they expect? What is there left of him when he's done his work? What's any artist but the dregs of his work, the human shambles that follows it around. What's left of the man when the work's done, but a shambles of apology. That's, uh, yeah, from Gaddis's work. It makes me think of Gaddis's own biographer, a a short biography, relatively speaking, um, Joseph Tabby, Nobody Grew But the Business. And, well, there's... Gosh, we can't have an episode uh, devoted to Lynn Gaddis in any way. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe in due time. In due time, in due yeah. Time. But, uh, I mean, this says it all. Yeah, it, it does. Yeah. It does. Yeah. That DeLillo includes this uh, in in his speech. Uh, it, it's kind of end of subject uh, as far as he's concerned, it right. seems. It, it champions the work over the man. Yeah. In, a, in no uncertain terms. Yeah. And I do think there is this story of the writer alone in the room is told, I think, in DeLillo's work that, you know, we have a kind of adoration of the typewriter, which we know is the one thing in that room with him. There's a kind of, but the, the embrace of the quotidian, you know, especially in the, in the kind of later works the, the, of daily life seems to me to be a kind of way of in not at all a boring way, but a, but a very kind of deep penetrating way, telling the story of the writer alone in in a room while also narrating nine 11 in, in part, you know, I think, um, and all these other sort of seismic events. I mean, he somehow manages to, con- uh, to combine uh, the writer alone in a room and the great public events. And maybe that's through, you know, a figure like Branch and in Libra, yeah. you know, these kind of writer, Bill Gray is, is, you know, he goes from being alone in his room in 
to participating in reluctantly the great clash of you know the day precisely terrorism and so on so what you're saying is uh, biography intertwines with history and mm-hmm. with with the world uh, yeah. for for that uh, for that intersection to take place is to be the writer in the room I want to draw attention to the fact that the full title for the Jerusalem Prize that Delilah was awarded mm-hmm. and for which he he gave that address. It's the Jerusalem Prize for the Freedom of the Individual in Society. Mm. I've always been kind of fascinated uh, by that title. It's so Delillo. <laughs> you know, it's such a, like, kudos uh, yeah. for for the award. For recognizing yeah. him for that prize. Right. right. Yeah, that, that kind of... That, that I mean, we we want him to win the Nobel Prize from our <laughs> title on, but we recognize that there are many prizes Delillo deserves, including this one that uh, uh, he has been given. Absolutely. And yeah, rightfully. Rightfully so. Rightfully so. <laughs>